Hello, and welcome to Progressive Opinions of Color, aka POC Podcast, a podcast that seeks to create space for people of color in conversations about economics, politics, and culture. I am your host, Nancy Wu, and today we have a badass guest, Kat Calvin. Kat is the founder of Spread the Votes and Project ID. So some interesting background on Kat. Kat Calvin is a lawyer, an activist, a social entrepreneur, and she has worked with numerous eligible voters across the nation that may have not had the proper documentation to obtain an identification, which is the very first step in registering to vote. Kat's projects include the Vote by Mail and Jail Initiative, which intends to facilitate mail-in voting for incarcerated individuals who are eligible to vote and educate family members on the voting process. More generally, Spread the Vote and Project ID are actively working to get people the documents necessary to obtain an ID and are supporting candidates that are dedicated to expanding access to IDs in their respective states. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Hi, Kat. It's so nice to meet you and to speak today. Hi, it's so nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So your background is really interesting. And (laughs) so you're a lawyer, an activist, a social entrepreneur. Um, So why don't you just tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. So I um, am the founder of an organization called Spread the Vote. Uh, We help people get government-issued photo ID, uh, which over 21 million eligible voters don't have in this country, uh, and then help educate folks and get them to the polls. Um, And I also run our political side, our C4, uh, which is called Project ID Action Fund, uh, in which we're working to change state and local policy to make it easier for people to get IDs uh, so we can do the work sort of one-on-one with folks, but also try to solve the problem in uh, some broader strokes. Uh, so that's that's mostly what I do. Voter ID has been in the news a lot, so people probably know that there are states is actually so the number is constantly changing. It's like around 36, but the laws are changing so fast that it's it's uh, it's always sort of fluctuating. But the vast majority of states require ID uh, or some form of identification to vote. And for anyone who's ever been to the DMV, you know how hard it is to get mm-hmm. one. You have to have lots of documentation. You have to have transportation to uh, the DMV. You have to have money. Uh, you have to have infinite amounts of patience. You have to have a lot of different things. And uh, so the folks we work with are uh, folks for whom it is even more difficult than uh, it is for just the average person to be able to get to the DMV and get that ID. So a lot of people who are um, unhoused or who are recently returning citizens or um, who are students um, and whose parents can't necessarily help them um, or who are elderly. Uh, We also work with folks sort of outside of the voting uh, spectrum. So for instance, with undocumented folks um, and just a lot of different people for whom, uh, you know, getting all the documents, getting birth certificates is really complicated. If you go to Vital Records and ask for birth certificate, they'll ask for your ID. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's already a loss, you know, getting a social security card, um, you know, having proofs of residency if you don't have a residence, right? All of these things are really complicated. Um, And it also costs money. Our average ID cost is $40, but it has sometimes run into the hundreds. Sometimes we get lucky and it's only like 20, but 20 if you don't have a job is really tough. And if you don't have an ID, you can't legally work. Uh, So we're working with folks who are uh, chronically underrepresented, um, for whom voting is a real challenge, for whom, you know, things like getting a job or you need an ID to get food at most 
most food banks and to get beds in a lot of shelters and to get housing and to get your life back on track. And so, uh, you know, we work really hard to help folks overcome those barriers um, and be able to, you know, just just do sort of the basics that we all have to do to have that little you know piece of plastic that we use for for everything that we need in life. It's so weird because sometimes you need an ID to get the documents that let you get an ID, which is, just doesn't make sense. I saw that you're also working on a project, the Vote by Mail in Jail initiative. Yeah, so Vote by Mail in Jail is something that we started last year um, and have been expanding. Uh, so one thing, you know, we work, like I said, a ton with uh, returning citizens um, and, you know, we try to work with people as close to when they are being released from jail or prison as possible to help them get an ID. Because when you're released, they'll say, all right, go get a job, but they won't give you the ID or any help in order to do that. Um, and so one of the things that we um, noticed when we were, were working with a lot of our clients and in these communities is um, just, you know, how many people really want to be politically engaged while they are incarcerated and don't realize that they can. You know, the fact is, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are incarcerated and can vote because if you are just in jail for a misdemeanor in almost every state, you can still vote. Uh, But of course, there aren't a lot of states that are working really hard to make sure that people can vote while they're in jail. And so our our Vote by Mail in Jail initiative um, works with people in jails all over the country and with jails and departments of corrections as partners uh, to be able to help folks register to vote, vote by mail, get election guides and be educated and be able to vote while they're incarcerated. So you founded this organization and lead these projects. What's a day in your life like? Um, It's mostly a lot of spreadsheets with Netflix on in the background. (laughs) And then I pause Netflix and I do a lot of Zooms or conference calls and then I go back to spreadsheets and I send a lot of emails. Uh, The great thing about COVID is I used to travel nonstop and then I stopped and I was like, oh, I'm never doing that again. Uh, And so, you know, it's, you know, when you're... You know, for me, being the the executive director, it's a lot of background work. You know, you have to do a lot of fundraising so that we can have staff and we can pay for IDs and stuff. You're doing a lot of organizing. You're doing, uh, you know, people sort of forget that nonprofits are businesses. We have to, like, do taxes and we have to, uh, you know, do all of the sort of things that a business has to do. Um, And so that's a lot of what I do. Um, And then, you know, our field staff are amazing and they are the ones who are on the ground. They go to shelters and to jails and they take people to the DMVs and they're the ones who are really, um, they and our, our volunteers and a lot of our partners are the ones who are uh, doing the amazing work on the ground of helping people get IDs every day. Yeah, I, I imagine that it would be a lot of traveling to get to places where they can get IDs. Were there any, what are some of the challenges that, or challenges or opportunities that have happened since working more remotely lately? When we had to lock down last March, I we really had to do a full overhaul because we work in person. Only 1% of our clients has regular access to a phone. Um, even fewer have regular access to the internet. And so, you know, we, they also, if you don't have an ID, you can't drive, right? So there's no mm-hmm. transportation. So we don't have offices because we have to go where our clients are. And it was all very in person. And we, you know, put people in our cars and drive them to the DMV. And all of a sudden we couldn't do that anymore. We couldn't leave our houses. Um, and most of the places, you know, the jails and the shelters and everything where we worked, they had to, uh, uh, shut down and stop allowing visitors in. Um, and so we basically did a huge, uh, 
process of figuring out how do we do this virtually. Um, you know, we've built a lot of stronger relationships with um, the case managers and social workers that we already worked with and new ones um, because they are incredible and they were still seeing uh, our clients and their clients every day. Um, you know, we uh, worked out a whole system of uh, like, you know, getting Ubers and Lyfts that were, you know, COVID safe and, um, you know, figuring out virtual ways to pay and this and that because we pay for all of the documents and the IDs just up front. So we had to figure out, well, how do we get folks this money so that they can get things? Uh, you know, we also, we had to do a lot. So DNV is closed for a while. Um, and so we did a lot of sort of virtual intakes and ordering whatever documents that we could and then having folks on a waiting list. And so that when the DMVs reopened, we could just, you know, sort of shuffle people through and then, you know, they reopened and they had limited appointments. So sometimes it would be months uh, before we could get someone in because we just couldn't get appointments. Um, And so for us, it was all about figuring out how do we do this as virtually as possible? How do we build the partnerships that are going to allow us to serve this community while we have to be locked down? Um, And how do we make sure that we have as many people prepared as possible so that the second we can get them an ID, we do? Uh, And, you know, it's it was kind of amazing we managed to get ids every single week of lockdown um which we were really proud of and it really you know there's so many things like the partnerships that have come out of this have been amazing uh you know we get to work with just you know incredible organizations and incredible groups that are like this has been so great we still want to keep doing this we figured out how to be efficient you know we're nonprofits. i'm always trying to figure out how can we be as economical as possible and we figured out a lot of ways um to do things that will will save us money um and this you know thus allow us to be able to afford more ids and so there was a lot of good that came out of it um but as soon as every volunteer and staff member got vaccinated they were so excited to get back on the ground of course so everyone got vaccinated immediately and they were like we're back at our favorite shelter so it's also it's been nice to be able Able to go back. Uh, but there are a lot of things that we learned over that year, year and a half that we've been using and will continue to use that did make us stronger. Yeah, COVID has really just changed things for a lot of <laughs> yes. organizations, especially like on the ground nonprofits. Or like how was work during the 2020 election and getting people IDs? What was that process like? Because I, I feel like 2020 made it a bit easier to vote personally because we got to mail yes. in things. And a lot more people were able to do that. But I know now there's all these voter suppression laws coming out trying to like change things. So I want to hear about the future, but also what happened in 2020. Yeah, well, I mean, the reason you're seeing all these laws uh, get passed is because voting in 2020 was so easy. You know, the great thing... Perhaps the only two great things about the pandemic is that it made voting easier and I didn't have to put on pants for a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the the great thing is that... States finally had to do all the things that voting rights activists have been asking for forever. They had to increase vote by mail. They had to increase the number of polling places. They had to increase early voting. They had to increase access access to uh, ballot drop boxes, right? Like all of the stuff that we've been saying forever. Hey, if you do this, more people can vote. And then they did it. And then more people voted. And they were like, right, see, this is why we don't do this. It's because <laughs> more people vote and more young people voted and more people of color voted and more people, low income people voted. You know, if you look at voting in America, uh, it is entirely, turnout is entirely proportional to socioeconomic status, right? So mm-hmm. 99% of the top 1% vote, and then it just goes down from there until you get to the bottom 10%, which have the lowest turnout in the country, because it's about accessibility, it's about ease of getting to the ballot, it's about access to ballot materials that are uh, written for comprehension, etc. Um, and so, uh, you know, we finally had all of these things where you have people who, you know, work hourly jobs and can't necessarily go stand in line for eight hours on a Tuesday. 
but all of a sudden they had access to mail-in ballots and they could just do it from home, I, which also allows you to be able to you know, Google an election guide that may be easier to read than, you know, I can't figure out the, the state election guides. And I'm a lawyer who works in voting rights. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying about these ballot measures. And so I have to have screens open and Google and et cetera. But I'm really privileged to have the time to do that. Most people don't. Uh, and so we saw incredible increases um, in, in voting and voter turnout in 2020. You know, for us, it was it was a mixed bag because, of course, we're working with folks, for instance, who are unhoused. And so there are specific ways in every state in order to sort of get a mail-in ballot if you're unhoused, if that's allowed, et cetera. They don't have access to the Internet. And so we usually do in-person. We make voter guides. We print them out, of course, because our folks don't have access to them on the Internet, although we always put them on our site. So you can always check our website and we have guides up for every area that we work in. I'm but we had to, you know, we shipped out like 15,000 guides in English and Spanish all over the country. And then we would send uh, either use sort of laptops that are sort of shelters or different partners had or send them to them and then do Zooms um, and, you know, and like send them pizza and just do like long distance voter guide education or voter education days and help them figure out how they're going to vote, you know, virtually because we couldn't do it in person. Um, you know, so there were some things that were, were different or more difficult just given our demographic. But overall... Voter turnout in 2020 was extraordinary, even during a pandemic, because we had all of these this access. And so now what's happened is voting. So, you know, the news is always about the suppressive laws. Mm -hmm. There are actually a lot of states that have expanded access or have realized, oh, hey, this worked. Let's keep it. Like, let's keep sending mail-in ballots to everybody. That was great. It totally worked. Everybody voted. That's what we want. So there are some states that uh, really expanded laws, you know, but there are, of course, the things we've heard about, which is the states that have severely restricted voter access because I'm because they saw what happened in 2020. Um, and so, you know, what's and Congress is not going to pass a voting rights bill. Like they're just not. Uh, and the one, you know, the one that they are are talking about passing now is actually pretty horrendous. It actually expands voter ID laws to all 50 states. So I'm not going to get started on that. Um, so, you know, but it's just, it's not a thing that appears to to be happening. And next year we have a really, really big election season. Midterms um, are huge. You know, we do have fall elections this year, although there aren't a lot of elections in, in the states that had really suppressive laws passed. So next year will be the big year. Um, and midterms do determine the partisan balance of Congress, but also there are over 200,000 offices that we vote on, right? There's mm -hmm. mayor and city council and governor. And what people don't understand is 80% of the decisions that impact your life are made by state and local government. Like that's your city council and mayor and sheriff and board of elections. Those are the people who make the decisions that really impact your day-to-day -day life. Um, and so in states where we have, we've had these, you know, incredibly suppressive laws pass. It makes it a lot more difficult for um, people who are not privileged, people who have to, you know, work every day, people who can't necessarily, you know, stand in a long line on a Tuesday, people who now can't vote by mail because they've restricted access to mail-in ballots. Uh, it makes it a lot more difficult uh, for those folks to vote. Um, and, you know, it's, it is a problem now where what we have to do is just ensure that we are doing our part to get everyone in our communities out to vote because it's really up to us, right? Congress has not taken action and it doesn't look like they will. Maybe, maybe we'll get very lucky, but <laughs> so far it doesn't look like they will. Um, and even, you know, if Congress does, then 
it's a guarantee the Supreme Court will strike at least some of the protections, right, given the, the balance of the Supreme Court that we have right now. Um, and Congress can only impact federal elections, which in most states means all elections and years that there are federal elections because they just can't afford to have suit two different sets of elections. Um, but for instance, Texas already has a plan because Texas can't afford it. And they will have two different sets of elections likely, right, If or they're going to try. Um, and so it is up to us to just look at my friends and family and make sure, how am I getting every single people? I'm going to make a list of 10 people and I don't care if I have to like throw them in the trunk and take them to the polls. Don't do that. But (laughs) they are like making sure they're going to vote. Um, And that's in every state because there is no state that has 100% voter turnout. Minnesota has been the top state for over a decade and they're at like 77% or something like that. Right. But like, no state has 100% turnout. Every state has problems with turnout. Every state makes it difficult uh, to vote. You know, I live in California. It's an amazing state. My ballot just shows up in the mail, but it's a really confusing ballot. You know, in 2020, it was like 2,000 pages and I couldn't mm-hmm. figure any of it out. And there was a lot of research. There's no state that makes it easy. And so wherever we are, it's up to us to make sure we're looking around and saying, all right, well, who am I going to make sure I get to the polls? That's so true. Starting out with family, especially our closest circle of people, yep. especially yep. people who may not vote. Like I, that's how I got my parents to start voting last time. But during the recall election that was happening, uh-huh. like I wanted to hear about that because that was happening in California. And then at the same time, there was a hurricane on the East coast. So all yes. the news on the East coast has been about the hurricane. <laughs> so I was not following the news in California. And then I uh-huh. caught up with one of my best friends from LA and I was like, bro, you didn't even ask me if I was okay during the flood. And he was like, what? We're having the like recall election. I was like, oh, <laughs> completely different news. And then he just looked up all of the videos of the flood. I was like, wow, uh, yeah. it's insane that how different the news is between like locations. But yeah, I want to hear more about that because I feel like I kind of missed out on that. Oh man, sure. So, you know, California um, has this wild system that hopefully we're about to reform because it was just such a disaster this time. Um, but you can recall an election elected official, which basically means have them pulled out of office and replaced with someone else uh, just by getting like a certain number of signatures. You know, it's, it's, it's not overly complicated. And so this is a thing that happens all of the time uh, where, and it's, you know, California most of the state, not all of it, but most of the state is heavily democratic. And so it's usually something that the Republican Party is doing because they're the ones who are sort of on the lower end of the scale in the state. Um, it is. It worked. Gray Davis, I think, is the last, I know is the last governor who was recalled. That, I believe, is how we got Schwarzenegger. <laughs> um, it's a whole other story. Um, I don't know if he's the only one. Um, but, uh, you know, Governor Newsom, look, is he the perfect governor? No. Is there a perfect governor? No. They're politicians. They're immediately terrible people. But he actually hasn't been doing a terrible job. He acted very fast when COVID happened. Uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot of really good actions. But of course, the California Republican Party doesn't like him. They're, he's a Democrat. They're Republicans. It's just the way things are. Uh, and then he did make a huge, terrible mistake when during the... Uh, the lockdown when restaurants were closed. He went out to eat at a very expensive restaurant in Napa. Oh, yeah. And it was a dumb, dumb politician thing to do. And it was a thing that they locked on and were like, oh, now we can recall him. So, you know, fast forward many, many moons later, and uh, the state had to spend like 300 million friggin' dollars. What? On a recall. Because here's the other problem with California. We're a big ass 
state, right? With a lot of people. So any statewide campaign is expensive AF because we're huge. There's a ton of people. And so so it was $300 million. There were like, whenever there's an election in California, 82,000 people run. Um, There was sort of like one guy who was kind of the front runner, but he was terrible and nobody liked him. Uh, And then you always have your sort of like, like there are people in California who are just famous for running for office and have done it for 30 years. They're never going to win. You had Caitlyn Jenner who actually got fewer votes than some of those people who are just famous for running. Oh my God. But it was insane. But you know, the crazy, so we have the whole election. We have a like really early, early voting and everybody gets a mail-in ballot. And so we had been voting forever. And then like the election day came and we were like, Oh my God, how long are we going to have to wait for results? Is it going to be close or whatever? They knew in 12 minutes. Wow. (laughs) Newsom, like so, he, he won. I mean, it was like, 70 something percent of the vote like it wasn't even close it was just this total smackdown and it was just such proof that the recall system is insane because nobody wanted it right like nobody in california was asking for a recall it's easy to get people to sign things like right now the local republican party is trying to recall our city councilman because he's one of the two people on our city council who really cares about homeless people. And they're trying to recall um, our district attorney because he actually doesn't think that, you know, you should put juveniles in jail for the rest of their lives for petty crime. And so they're, you know, outside of our grocery stores and whatever, like trying to get signatures. And it's just, it's not hard enough. Um, And so this has really shaken up California politics and even like regular people are like, this is absurd. We spent $300 million during a pandemic and like, you know, had to deal with ads and with all of this stuff for months and months and months for an election that was not even close <laughs> because nobody actually wanted it. Right. And it was completely unnecessary. So that is the story of the recall. And now the hope and we'll see. I mean, it's always so hard to change these things. But the hope is that this will lead to us making uh, it much more difficult to have a recall election because, you know, it's a tool that's being used really to bully people. And it's just wasting time and valuable money. No, You know, we have a huge surplus in this state. We still don't have the money to just throw away. We have a mm-hmm. lot of people who need housing and who need food and who need other things. We have a lot of issues in the state. And we couldn't pay attention to them. And the governor couldn't pay attention to them because he was dealing with this ridiculous recall. So it's a bit too easy to do recall elections in California, a bit too difficult to vote in many other states. Yeah. It's tough to get the balance right. You know, so California tries to make things really open and accessible, right? So it's really easy to recall people. It's really easy to uh, create a a ballot measure, right? To put on the, I'm on a statewide ballot. And they did that because they were like, oh, we want people to, you know, be able to easily affect government and this and that. The problem is that it's so easy that it lets the assholes just get away with being assholes, right? And, like, it's state government, it's difficult. And, it, you know, it's it's hard to find the right balance. I would certainly rather that we erred on the side of making things too easy mm-hmm. rather than erring on the side of being suppressive. Um, but it is, you know, this is the act of governing and policymaking is constantly refining. I mean, like, oh, we did this oh, that wasn't perfect. Like, it's a a step up. It's not perfect. Let's refine it. Let's figure it out. And that's the thing that we don't do enough. I'm, you know, it's certainly Congress never refines anything. They just pass something and it's horrible and then it takes decades and maybe somebody will change it, right? Um, And what we should really be doing is doing our research and our due diligence, writing the best bills we can, passing them, and then saying, all right, we're going to review this once a year and see if it's working and see what we need to change. Mm -hmm. And we don't do that second part and we need to. 
this question might be putting on the spot a little bit, but I'm curious, what is your ideal system for voter registration? Uh, well, look, we're the only country on the planet that does voter registration, right? This, this is like, we're also like the only country that makes people spend ridiculous amounts of monies to figure out how much we owe the IRS. The IRS knows. And every other country, you just get a bill because they know how much you owe. And they're like, just pay us this, right? They make us go through all this crap to, us, you know, estimate how much we owe. And then when we're $2 off, they're like, you're $2 off, we're going to fine you because they already know, right? Yeah, that's so inefficient. <laughs> it's It's wild. You know, it's the same thing with voter registration. North Dakota doesn't have voter registration because they don't oh. need it. I mean, A, they've got like five people, but also you just don't need it. No other country has a voter registration. It's very difficult explaining what I do to my friends who don't live in the U.S. because we also, there's no ID problem in any other country. You just get to whatever age and then you go to your local place and they give you an ID. And then if you lose it, you just go back and you get another one. This isn't an issue. They don't have tens of millions of people who don't have ID, who can't get homes or jobs because they don't have this little required government piece of plastic. They just give it to you. Maybe it's like five euros when you're 16, right? But like, it's just a thing you get. And so, and it's the same with voter registration. You know, like I was talking to someone in Germany and I literally had to keep explaining the concepts of voter registration and getting someone an ID like four times because she didn't understand it. Because she was oh like, I gosh. don't understand how this is a thing you have to like, we just do it. It's like, no, I know, but you have to understand you're Germany and we're America. <laughs> and like, we are not, you guys also have like a really brilliant train system that always runs on time. Oh my God. You'll yes. never have that either. You know? <laughs> um, and so it's, it's absurd. We don't need voter registration. We don't. We know where everyone is. Um, you know, automatic voter registration that is most states now have at the DMV is incredible because it does exactly the thing. It, it says, look, we're just going to freaking register you. You're in the system. We're all in the system. This is also, we don't need to do a census. Every government agency and half the teenagers in Kazakhstan know exactly where you are and what you're doing right now. <laughs> all of this data is out there. We don't need someone knocking on your door to count how many people are in your house. The government knows how many people are in your house. <laughs> like it's, you know, we're just, we, we just, we made rules a hundred years ago, 200 years ago now, maybe. And then we're like, yeah, you know what? We're fine. We don't need to like review this at all. We, what the thing we decided in 1822, it still works. It does. Like we have iPhones now, you know? And so voter reg makes no sense. We should have a national ID. Uh, you know, the fact that this country is fine with millions of people not being able to get jobs or get housing or get food because they don't have an ID that we could just print up and give to them is unbelievable, right? It's just, it's, we're a country where you, we believe you have to earn the right to live and no one's going to help you earn that right, you know? Um, you know, the documentation process is ridiculous. I had to go to the DMV this summer. I'm... And I was I got a, a new license. I got a motorcycle license, which is very exciting. Um, so I had to go through the whole process of like taking the test to get a new license, et cetera. And I had all this documentation, but when I got there, they scanned my fingerprint. And then every single station that I went to, I was like 85. There's so many stations you have to go to for these things. But they never asked me for anything. I just scanned my fingerprint and then they pulled up all my info and we went through the next part of the process. And I was like, wait a damn second. Why do I, why do I have an organization that only helps people get massive amounts of documentation when you could just scan our fingerprints? You know who we are. You know, most of the folks we work with, like a lot of the folks we work with have 
been in the criminal justice system. So you have their DNA and everything, right? Like there is no reason for me to be like scrambling, trying to find medical records and their school records from 1972. You can just scan our fingerprints. Like, like we have the technology to do these things in a quick and an efficient and an equitable manner. We just don't, cause we just don't really care because we don't care about people who aren't out here earning the right to live. If we did, we'd have universal health care. Mm-hmm. But we think it's fine if you and your children die because you can't get a job that gives you the best health care. So why would we care if you had an ID? We don't care. We just don't care. It's insane. I feel like the incentives that are set up for for working in the U.S., I mean, even the people who are like in charge of making these laws, they're probably not thinking about the people who can't get IDs or like whose families will be severely harmed and not be able to earn an income or find a job because people just, these are afterthoughts to the administrators because they're not thinking about Well, and here's how we know that they don't think about this. This is only a 20-year-old problem because these rules and the challenges that we've, the barriers we put in place to get IDs didn't exist before 9-11. Oh, so but the 9-11 terrorists had, they had something like 39 valid IDs among the 19 of them or something, right? And so all of a sudden we had the 9-11 commission, everybody freaked out, all the DMVs freaked out. And overnight, they made it almost impossible to get an ID because they were so busy thinking about these sort of knee-jerk reactions that they didn't think about, huh, if we do this, who will it hurt? Mm-hmm. Because we just we just don't think that way. So that this is... This is also partially why people don't know about this problem, right? Is because it's only 20 years old. And it's just a thing we did because we just do things without really thinking about who it's going to hurt. And so we overnight, because the 50 states very, like they took the 9-11 commission, actually real ID is part is what the 9-11 commission recommended. And that 20 years later, we're still trying to implement. But the DMVs can change their rules, most states, without changing a law. Um, and in some states, it's just like a, cha- a statute change or whatever. Um, and so they just very quickly all changed their rules, all made it really difficult to get IDs without telling anyone. You also, the, the amounts of uh, security that's in your ID and the things they do and like look up before you get your ID and like what your photo is and face matching and all of these things, they did it all. They didn't have to tell any of us they were doing it. And then all of a sudden we had over 21 million adults in this country who couldn't get ID wow. because they just made it really difficult overnight and just didn't think about who it would hurt. Rewinding a bit, what were IDs like before 9-11? 9-11 was like a year after I moved to the U.S. So I had no, I didn't even have like, I had a passport, I think. I didn't even uh, know what was going on. So it was just a lot easier. So you had to have far fewer documents. If you had an, a valid ID from another state, then you could usually just get one in the new state. Um, you didn't have to have as many proofs of residency and your social security card, etc. You know, when I was 16, I got my driver's license we brought, you know, probably my school transcript and maybe my birth certificate or passport or whatever, right? But it's, there, the barriers were far lower. They required far less documentation. Um, and the documentation that it did require wasn't as intensive. You know, getting a social security card when you don't have an ID is really tough. We found some ways to do it. But it's it's a challenge. And it's a challenge that most people don't know how to do without help. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different things that just the number of documentation, like the number of pieces of paper you have to bring in if you've ever changed your name, et cetera. All mm-hmm. of those things didn't exist. It was a, it was much easier. You came in, you brought one or two things and they were like, great, here's an ID. Wow. And it was fine. You know, it wasn't. And the thing, you know, when you look at security, obviously security is important, but again, I just scanned my fingerprint 
at every station of the DMV and they knew it was me and I got my thing and they have all of my information and data, right? Like the security that we have now is so much more advanced than it was 20 years ago, even that what we don't need someone to bring in a copy of their utility bill and a voter registration card to like prove who they are. We have so many other ways to prove who people are. Right. And the government knows that. And so we could easily create a system that is easier, that is less expensive, that is more equitable. And that's actually safer than someone, you know, having to, you know, prove who they are with a a lease or a DD-214. So it's a thing we could do easily. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have all the data about everyone. Yep. If we were to merge all the data sets that we have of people's information, literally every single piece of information would, would be there. And so and yet there are obstacles to to that. So that's very weird. It's also weird that we don't have a national ID. We have like state IDs. I guess I don't even think about that. Yeah, we should have a national ID or at the very least every state. And this is a thing that we, uh, we will be fighting for. This will probably be what I'm fighting for until I die. But Ooh. like, you know, if the, if the Congress won't do it, which they won't look, they can't do anything. If they had to vote to decide what to eat for lunch, they would all starve to death. But every state could do it, right? Like California could just say, hey, we're going to have, you know, we have a state ID. We're just going to make sure that every 16-year-old just gets one. You turn 16 in high school, you know, the DMV comes in a little van and they get everybody who turns 16 that week an ID, right? And, and it's easy. And like the schools know who you are. They let you in school. You've got transcripts. They've got all your information. Like it's, it could be so easily done. And each state could do it and it would save the state's money and time. I mean, you'd have then hundreds of thousands to millions of people in your state, depending on how big your state is, who could get a job, which is the first thing people say when they get an idea is, oh, I can go apply for a job now, right? Mm -hmm. And who wouldn't be on the streets and it would reduce crime and all of these things. If every state just went to every high school and got everyone who turned 16 an idea. Or if you want to push it to 18, fine, right? But like, it's, it is, it's such an easy possible thing to do. That's so true. It's like ridiculously easy. Yes. <laughs> yes oh my is. gosh. And yet, oh, so many problems in the U.S. are like that. I'm curious, how did you transition from, um, did you work in law at all? Like, what was your career transition like? And how did you get into? Uh, I've never really practiced. So I went to law school. Um, and um, when I got out, I worked in educational reform. And I was like, oh, these people are terrible. Um, <laughs> and so, and look, I like having bosses. I, bosses aren't great. Even if they're great, they're not great because it's a person telling you what to do. And I'm not down with that. So I very quickly was like, this place, and the place I was working was a nightmare. And I was like, I'm not doing this. And so I started my first nonprofit. I'm in Washington, D.C., working with high school girls. Um, and then I had a, a startup that I read as well and this sort of entrepreneurs group. And then I was doing too much. And then I got, after a few years, I'm, or several years, I got super sick. Um, and I had to sort of shut it all down and like get a bunch of doctors and, and et cetera. Um, and so then I was like, I'm retiring and I moved to L.A., and I was doing like sort of like very easy legal work I, when I first moved here and like trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I was like, I'm never going to run a nonprofit again. Um, I'm just going to like chill on the beach. Um, <laughs> and then the 2016 election happened and I was like, damn it, I'm out of retirement. Um, and so that's when I started Spread the Vote. So mostly my career has been uh, social entrepreneurship, entrepreneurism, either running startups or, or nonprofits. And I'm... And I, you know, I've only, it's weird. I've been out of law school for 10 years because I'm very old. Um, But also like, it's only been 10 years. It's sort of funny looking back. It's like, oh, I guess I just like 
decided that rather than be a boring lawyer, I'll just be a broke nonprofit person forever. <laughs> that is so badass. This is like what I want to do. Like, yeah, I'm tired of bosses and working for other people. It's never going to be moving up the corporate ladder. Doesn't just, just not satisfying to me. And like, I would love to start a nonprofit, but like, so asking selfishly, cause that sounds like really challenging. I don't even know where to start. How, how did you build connections? Like, if I were to do this tomorrow, like what would you recommend? Well, so here, here's what I tell people when they ask about starting a nonprofit. The first thing I say is, you know, obviously you have to choose an issue. Choose something that you are so passionate about that when times are really hard and it's really shitty and you want to like jump off a bridge and everything is terrible, that you keep going because you care so much about the issue, right? So if it's something that you're like sort of blah about, I'm or really like something that you can't see an impact with, which is hugely so many nonprofits, uh, and, and not necessarily the, you know doing due to any fault of their own, but it's very difficult to see the change you're making and that can make it really hard to stick to. Um, and so I, so like find a thing that you're super passionate about and that, you know, you care about and that, you know, you're going to care about, you know, you don't have to stay with the nonprofit forever. I actually don't think it's healthy for founders to stay with their nonprofits forever. Um, but you know, expect to spend the next 10 years working on this issue through really hard times. Once you find that issue, Look for other organizations that are working on that issue because there might be another nonprofit that's doing amazing work in this that you can contribute to um, and help them further that mission, right? Like I replicating work sometimes is important. We're a big country, you know? I'm nobody complains about the fact that there are too many voter registration orgs, right? There's a lot of people to register. You know, nobody complains that there are too many organizations curing cancer, right? I replication sometimes is important, but you want to start by knowing what's out there and by seeing how those organizations work. And you might find like, oh, I love this organization. These people are amazing. They're going along this in a really good way. And I think I can contribute to them. You might see like, oh, you know what? There's some organization. Some of them are doing great work. Some of them aren't that great. But none of them are approaching this issue in the way that my research, that's the other thing, do a crap ton of research, talk to every expert you can, talk to everybody you can, uh, you know, and then be, I think there might be another way. Or maybe you'll find an issue that no one's ever tried to solve before. That's unlikely, but you might. You still want to do your research, et cetera. You know, so it's a, it's a long process, really figuring all that out. The other thing that that's going to help you do is make those connections, right? And build that network because you have to raise money to run a nonprofit. Uh, and so you need to have allies and friends in that sector, whether it's education or climate change or saving the dolphins or whatever, you know, folks who are going to help you meet donors, all of those things. Um, you're going to need to recruit volunteers, you know, all of that. And so you oh want gosh. to it's it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of organization. It's a lot of project management. People think running a nonprofit is sexy, but like I wasn't kidding. I spend most of my time either on spreadsheets or Zoom meetings. My staff get to do the amazing work of being on the ground, going to shelters, going to jails, getting IDs. But I'm mostly talking to folks like begging for money or dealing with like accountants or the IRS or I'm or lawyers or this or that or whatever, like actually doing the work of running the business. And that's another thing to think about. Like, do you want to be a CEO? Cause it's a totally different job than like being the person who's actually out cleaning up the beach. And if that's the person you want to be like doing that very sexy work, then find a nonprofit that has a DD and then work for them. Right. Cause it's, it's a different 
job. And I've, I've had journalists sometimes say, oh, they want to follow me around. I'm like, well, you can follow me around while I'm on like my computer all day. And they're like, well, <laughs> well we want to see you doing the work. And I was like, you don't understand what the executive director of a, special, of a nonprofit does. We sit on our computers all day <laughs> and we organize things and we do math and we like manage employees and we deal with like registration issues and that's, you know, and insurance. Oh my God. Right. All these things. Right. Oh my God. Um, so, you really need to have a really clear understanding and volunteering in nonprofits is a really good way to do this. You know, there's tons of books and blogs and whatever, but have a really clear understanding of what the job looks like. You know, you're constantly fundraising. All you're ever doing is fundraising, right? And, and when you have staff, all of a sudden you're responsible for that staff and you have to pay them salary and benefits and whatever. Um, and you're going to have good years and you're going to have really, really horrible years. You're going to have years when no one is donating money because the government is shut down or Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a pandemic or this or that. uh, And you have, you're going to have to deal with that. And so, um, you know, everyone thinks that it's really sexy running a nonprofit and it's, it's not now it's rewarding. I love what we do. I love my team more than anything. And it's amazing that we get to help people change their lives every day by getting IDs. And that is why I'm willing to get up every morning and like do a lot of zooms and special. I also love special, right. And a lot of emails and a lot of donor reports and a lot of this and that and whatever is because I know that that's the part that I play in making this great work happen. Um, but it's you, a lot of people get into nonprofits and they are like, Oh, I didn't realize it was going to be like this. And they're really miserable. So you really need to know what part you want to play. You can do good no matter what you do, right? You could be a, a barber and on the weekends give free haircuts to people who are homeless, right? Like you can be an interior designer who works with Habitat for Humanity, right? Like no matter what you do, you can do good and you can change lives. It's just really important that you are doing playing the part in that, that you love, uh, because otherwise you're going to be just burnt out and miserable. Well, thank you so much. That's all the questions I have. Was there anything else you wanted to chat about that I didn't get to? No, uh, just if you, you know, if you have an election coming up in your city or state, Virginia, you guys have uh, your assembly elections, New Jersey, New Orleans, Atlanta. Uh, There's a lot of different places that have elections this fall. It's not sexy. The news may not be talking about it, but go vote. Um, And um, if you want to get involved with Spread the Vote, you can go to spreadthevote.org slash volunteer. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll leave that link below. It was really great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of the support that y'all have given us and this podcast growth. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram and subscribe on us on any platform that you use. Be sure if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and write a review. It really helps us get discovered as a fairly new podcast and I will... See y'all in the next episode. Bye.